I brought a blender full of whey protein, oatmeal, and Greek yogurt blended up to eat. So I was eating 10,000 calories plus a day, literally about 500 grams of protein. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Hey, guys. Thank you for being here. Thanks for joining me on the show. I really appreciate it. As always, if you are new to the show, please give me a rating and review. If you love what you hear, if you have been a loyal listener for a long time, welcome back. Hopefully, you've already given me a rating review. If you haven't, go do it. I appreciate it if you would do that. That would make my life so much better, and I know that's what you want to do. So thank you for that. Uh, in all seriousness, guys, uh, I've got a fun show for you today. Uh, really great interview and a great guest. Uh, real fun for me. I'm a big football fan, and this is a former NFL guy. And uh, I, I spent a couple of minutes uh, fanboying a little bit and asking him about that whole thing and his football career and and uh, how that all took shape uh, from uh, from high school through college and onto the pros. So that's a little bit of fun for me. It's a little diversion from real estate for a minute. It doesn't last that long, but I indulged myself a little bit. Uh, but when we dove into real estate, uh, he was very forthcoming. He knows his stuff. And the cool thing is he sort of has like the wisdom and the expertise and the skills of someone who's been doing this for decades, but he's only been in the game for four years. And he's like, done a ton in that amount of time. Uh, so without any further ado, guys, let's talk about him a little bit. He's a real estate investor, developer, and founder of Live Free Investments. Uh, and he's found his niche in the industry, acting as an investment property specialist, actually representing buyers instead of sellers in, tra in the transaction process. He's completed over 120 transactions in less than a year and relies on establ his established processes and priorities to guide his profit-producing activities. He's continually investing in himself so that he can provide great value to his investors, making sure to pivot and listen to what the market is providing. Guys, I have on the show today, Logan Freeman. We had a great conversation. I really, truly enjoyed talking to him. I love talking to all my guests, guys, but listen, I'm human. I, I resonate and and some people I just sort of click with a little better than others. Uh, it's, just, it's just human nature. It's just normal, right? And I, I just clicked with him. He seemed like a really good guy, a really smart guy. And uh, he was up for it. Like he was up for answering questions and and just getting into some really great answers. We dropped some huge gold bombs in this episode. So get ready, guys. I uh, give you, without any further delay, Logan Freeman. Hey, Logan, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, Mike, uh, it's my pleasure to be here. I love Chick-fil-A and that's what they always say. It's my pleasure. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Exactly. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure as well. Uh, we, we do our background checks. I kind of know who I'm talking to, uh, but also there's a, there's a lot of discovery that goes on in the show. And I, I, I learned things I didn't know just by doing my, my investigation. So I'm excited to talk to you, but before we get dive into the nuts and the bolts and we kind of dig into some of the things that I definitely want to talk to you about, can you maybe back up to before real estate, maybe a younger man than you are now, even though you look pretty young still, but a younger man, what, what were you up to before you got into real estate? Why did you get into real estate? What did your life, like, life look like that you got to the point where real estate made sense for you? Absolutely. And so I'm a Midwestern boy. I grew up in Jefferson City, Missouri. Right. And uh, I like to call Jefferson City the, the city of trucks. It feels like uh, it's whose truck is bigger there. <laughs> but uh, Jeff City's a great, great place. But when I read Carol Dweck's mindset book, she delineates between the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. And when I read that book, it was later in college. And I was like, oh, wow, 
Jefferson City is definitely more of a fixed mindset. Um, and I've always had this growth mindset. Uh, I don't know why. I think it was ingrained in me because of two reasons. Uh, I'm still reflecting on this, but my mother worked two jobs to uh, kind of provide for our family. And that was one reason I think that uh, even though she's not really a, a growth mindset type of person, she did what she had to do. Uh, and then the second one is my dad from an early age, always instilled in me. He said, son, you can do whatever you want to, but you have to set your mind to it. And I, I didn't really know what that meant uh, growing up. And I was like, oh, but that always like rang true. I'm sure everybody has kind of something that their dad or their mom said to them that, that rang true. And so I took that work ethic, that mindset, I started working when I was, I tried to start working when I was 13. I'm a big guy. So by 13, I was six feet tall and 200 pounds, it felt like probably. <laughs> and so um, I, started, I started to start, you know, working. And my mom said, you can't work yet. I said, ah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take no for an answer. So I kept asking around. Finally, I found two jobs when I was 14. And uh, one of them was bailing hay. So uh, for all you coastal folks uh, here in the Midwest, uh, a lot of animals <laughs> eat hay and you pick it up out of a field and you put oh, it on a trailer. That's right. And uh, that's what I did. And I also got a job washing dishes and scrubbing floors at a catering business. And I kind of just, you know, started to make some money and uh, saved a lot of money. I was a penny pincher. And um, I, my freshman year in high school, I took the uh, Financial Peace University uh, you know, high school class version of Dave Ramsey's uh, deal. And I had some money. So I started my first Roth IRA when I was 15 years old. Wow. I continued to, you know, max that out as I was, I was working and, and things like that. And I got, I got a opportunity to play collegiate football. So I went to the University of Central Missouri in Warrensburg uh, and played division two football there. Uh, and, you know, what I learned um, as I, I was going through collegiate sports was that, um, you, you get to impact your results and uh, you, you, you impact them by the decisions and the choices that you make. So I, um, I was lucky enough to get some playing time my true freshman year. I broke an ankle and tore an MCL. So I got a medical redshirt. Well, throughout my career, I, I you know, developed and uh, worked really, really hard at it. Uh, I was an All-American, academic All-American. Uh, and one day after practice or during, right before practice, I was headed in early, like I always did to watch film. And I asked my coach, I said, Hey coach, I see the Carolina Panthers, uh, scouts here. And he was like, yeah, he's, he's here. And, uh, he's, he's actually waiting in the room here. And I was like, well, who's he, who's he here to see? He goes, he's here to see you. I was like, Oh, well, that's kind of cool. You know, yeah. I had no, no, uh, uh, no goal to, to play at the next level. And, and so I was a captain for a few years at uh, Central, got picked up as an undrafted free agent uh, with the Oakland Raiders, which we can dive into. And I was cut sh shortly thereafter. Uh, if you guys are watching the video, I've got a scar about that size on, on this shoulder, the exact same one on this shoulder. And when I was cut, I was 335 pounds at the NFL Combine. And I decided that uh, I was done playing football after I got cut from the Oakland Raiders. In less than four weeks, I lost 45 pounds. And uh, it's because my frame is not a 335 pound type of frame. Yeah. And so I was in shape. I was, I was healthy. But uh, when the 49ers called me, they said, Hey, our center just went down. We want to fly you out. It was, you know, if you guys watch hard knocks, it was about that last week of cuts. So uh, you're probably going to make the team if you make it through one more week. And yeah. since they lost alignment the and called me, there's a pretty good chance that I said, no, I said no, because I knew who I was or who I wanted to, to be. And I went back, finished my master's program 
got a job that I had to drive an hour and a half to, turn my classroom or my car to the classroom on wheels. That's where I learned about uh, John Lee Dumas and Lewis Howes and mm. Matt Terrio and uh, uh, James, I forget James' last name, something Egg Investments, man. He was, they were all doing these podcasts way back when. Yeah. I listened to Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, Tony Robbins, all of those guys started to really develop that growth mindset. Along that way, I was introduced to Robert Kiyosaki. Well, I made 265 cold calls, eight hours a day. I would drive back to Warrensburg and go to school for four hours in the evening, 12 hours on Saturdays at uh, the library to stay and, you know, stay ahead of the game. And I got up at 3 a.m. every single day to lose 120 pounds in less than four months. When I was getting ready to graduate, this was a big, this was the second big decision point in my life or a turning point in my life. My father, who's a strapping 6'3", 250 pound Native American, couldn't make it up the stairs to move me out of my collegiate dorm. Something's not right here. My dad has always battled drugs and alcohol addiction. Less than two weeks later, my father died. So in six months, I get cut from the NFL. I'm no longer an athlete. Got to find my identity, lose 120 pounds. I'm going back to school, working full time. And my father passes away. So it was like this huge, just like, uh, you know, big point in my life where uh, thankfully I made some good decisions and had some really great people uh, to help me. Uh, but that's what put me on this journey of trying to better myself. That was about eight years ago now. Uh, okay. What will this year be? No, sorry, seven years ago now uh, that my father passed away this this upcoming January, and that's the that's the trajectory I have been on. And uh, uh, three and so sorry, I know this is getting a little lengthy, and we'll stop. Sorry, that's all right. I got but a ton the, of questions. Sorry. Okay, the uh, the last turning point in my life happened uh, in. Well, it was December or October, October, November, December, three and a half years ago, almost four years ago now is when I was cut from the corporate world. I was fired. I was exited forcefully. (laughs) Uh, In that time, I said, no more. I'm done with the corporate world. And uh, my wife said, hey, check your email when you get home. I checked my email and she had started the Articles of Organization, which is is now Live Free Investments. Um, in our real estate investing company. So that's my story. And that's kind of how I progressed along that journey, Mike. All right. A couple questions. I'm always fascinated. I, I knew some some folks when I was in school, high school. Uh, one guy in particular was actually a friend of my brother's, but it, it, insanely talented defensive lineman. Um, mm-hmm. It was being recruited by all the big schools, uh, full right scholarship to Michigan University, uh, University of Michigan, I should say, uh, here in Michigan. Um, but his father passed away while he was in school in college, yep. and he abruptly quit. And everyone thought, "Oh, he's, it's his dad; he's distraught." But what it turned out was he had he had he was the most talented defensive lineman in Michigan's history to that point, probably. He just didn't he didn't want to play football. He just didn't yep. want to, right? And I'm always fascinated. So you said you got an opportunity to play football, but I'm just curious. I don't want to spend a lot of time because probably sure. I'm the most interested in this right now than everyone listening. But what do you mean you got an opportunity? Did someone approach you and say, Hey kid, you're huge. Like, come on out. We think we could make you a good football player. Or did you have a desire to play football? So growing up, I always wanted to be an NBA basketball player. Okay. And uh, I was pretty tall, maybe maybe was uh, on the trajectory, but I, I topped out at six two and a half. Well, those are point guards in yeah. the NBA. This, the point guards are six four. Yeah. And so uh, my freshman year in high school, I didn't even play football. I played basketball. 
Okay. Well, I started having knee problems from the running and the jumping and, yeah. and I was, you know, a big guy. And so, uh, the, the football coach caught me. He's like, Hey man, you know, you need to, you need to try out for, for football. And yeah. I was like, all right. So I hit the weight room. I, that freshman year after basketball, I went to the weight room every single day and I started my sophomore year on JV and then junior and senior and on varsity, obviously. But like, yeah, it was, it was an opportunity because somebody saw something in yeah. me that said, Hey, I never had the, you know, frankly in grade school when I was playing football, I would always complain about all the, the bruises on my arm. Yeah. You know, I was a little baby. <laughs> That's why I didn't like it. It hurt, you know? Well, those, and so, those yeah. football coaches, those high school football coaches, they are prowling those, uh, those oh, hallways yeah. looking, man. They're for anybody who looks like, you know, they could definitely, I'm sure that you would, they were just like, you are a stake to them. They were selling. That's right. I'm sure. Um, that's interesting, man. And then, so you got to, you got to college. You, you obviously were all American. You were great there. This is the other thing I'm curious about because I hear again, it's not, it's not unique. It's just, it's always fascinating to me. You were an all American. How were you not thinking NFL? Like weren't people <laughs> around you saying, dude, you're, you're going to be in the NFL or even if they didn't, you were getting accolades. You were obviously good. Yeah. You knew you were good. How could the NFL not be something that you were considering or at least trying for? Yeah. You know, I never, I never really thought about it um, in, until I started seeing those scouts. I never thought it was a reality. I wasn't taught from an early age to have big goals, Okay, right? I hadn't read 10X rule from Grant Cardone yet. You know, I'm highly confident that if I would have picked up a book or somebody would have said dream bigger, that I'd still be playing on Sunday. Okay. I'm highly confident about that. Yeah. But that obviously, you know, was not my, my trajectory or my plan. Yeah. So in college, when I started getting these accolades, you have to understand too, what is it? 0.001% of the collegiate athletes get the opportunity yeah. to actually go play at the next level. Yeah. And I'm a division two football player. So I'm below D D D one D one double a, and then there's division two. Yeah. And so I just, it never really dawned on me that that was even an opportunity. So uh, I never really dreamed that that big up until that point, Mike. I think that's yeah. probably why I just didn't, I didn't see it as a reality. So you uh, just, again, as I'm going down a rabbit hole that I guarantee people are going, all right, get onto the real estate, man. But I'm just <laughs> curious, the, do, your coaches didn't come up to you and say, hey man, or, or not hey man, but the coaches didn't come up, hey son, like you've got talent. I think you should be thinking about this. Did they not push? I, I, saw, I assume they didn't because you weren't thinking about it. Yeah, you know, I think they probably may have mentioned it, but we also went through a coaching transition. Okay. So the head coach left and the, all the new coaches came on gotcha. um, right whenever I was kind of hitting my peak. Yeah. And so it was more or less they were focused on, oh, my gosh, we're starting a brand new organization. We have yeah. a new culture, all of that. The You know, even playing with that that ideal wasn't really in their mind. And these Division two. Uh, football players typically are not, uh, they're division two for a reason. One, they're physically undersized or two, something is not um, yeah. as fast mentally or three, they have some kind of disciplinary action. For yeah. me, I was undersized, but you know, they also didn't want to put that, uh, they didn't want to put that in your, in these, in these athletes heads because so many of them don't focus on their, uh, their, uh, you know, their student part yeah. of being a student athlete. So yeah. if you start saying, Hey, you got some talent. You might be able to play at the next level. Then you start checking out of, of your, your grades. And then, yeah. you know, then you're not, you know, then you're not eligible to play, to play football. So, so I think they had to play a fine, a really fine line. And uh, I yeah. appreciate that they, they didn't do that because I focused on being on the Dean's list every single semester. <laughs> I think that probably, you know, 
is, is better than trying to focus on the NFL anyway. So, yeah. um, you know, it just, it didn't really come up much from, for yeah. us. Okay. That makes sense. It's interesting. You said you're undersized. You were 330 coming out of college, like 330. When I was growing up, you would have been the biggest offensive lineman in the history of the NFL by a, a large margin. You know what I mean? Isn't it crazy yeah. how these sizes have gotten. I mean, 280 pounds, 290 pounds. That's a good size lineman back in the Absolutely. 80s and 90s. You know, nowadays, if you're not over 300, you're kind of small, which is just yeah. Crazy. So I'll I'll say this. I packed the weight on, but it didn't necessarily go to the right places. I've got these chicken legs, so I had to, <laughs> I had to deadlift and squat every day to keep my legs yeah. to where they were. What what I would say is my shoulders, my arms, my chest was as big as anybody's, but I don't have the frame that when I got to the Oakland Raiders and I saw some of these men, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like these guys are NFL football players. I'm here because yeah. I have a work ethic and I'm, I'm eating 20,000 calories a day, it feels like, just yeah. to keep this weight what do you eat to get, What do you eat to maintain 20,000 or whatever it was? Like, what, Are you eating like cheeseburgers and stuff or are they like packing a lot of chicken into you? How's that look? So this is a funny story that uh, in my master's program, my last year there when I was playing football, I had, a, I had a note from the head coach of the football team that allowed me to order a pizza every single night. <laughs> and I brought a blender full of whey protein, oatmeal, and Greek yogurt blended up to eat. So I was eating 10,000 calories plus a day, literally about 500 grams of protein. Oh my gosh. You just named other people's dream life. You know, the, the, the thing is you got that pizza every day, but you know, I played high school football and I was not great on my high school team, but I remember practice. Uh, mm -hmm. that is work and the, the weight room is, is work. work. So yes, you had a pizza every night, but you also had to practice college level football and NFL yep. level football. So, uh, totally understood, man. That's awesome. Thanks for indulging me. I appreciate it. Of course. It. Huge, yeah. huge football fan. So I always love asking some of that stuff of folks that I get to talk to them. Um, but let's get back into the real estate a little bit. You, you did mention that you got fired from corporate. Just out of curiosity, sure. what were you doing there? What was your position? I've always uh, been geared towards being in sales because I am very set up to be a performance-based kind of person. I thrive with under pressure, right? Yeah. I was, you know, I love the analogy of diamonds have intense heat and massive pressure before they become a, a yeah. diamond. I don't even know what they are before a diamond, but um, so I, I thrive under that pressure. So sales and, and performance-based pay was always something that was interesting to me. I was in the yeah. hotel and restaurant space selling uh, consulting and services uh, to big restaurant brands. So I mentioned Chick-fil-A. They were a client of ours, you know, all of the Burger Kings, Taco Bells. And it was basically a survey that you would take after you go to the restaurant and then you get a discount or a free yeah. sandwich next time you come in. Yeah, yeah, totally familiar. That's cool. Okay, got it. Um, okay, so you did that. You got fired from there. Your wife started the LLC. I love yep. that. I love the name. It's fantastic. It's so great. Um, what happened from there? What, where did you, how did how did your beginnings of your, your uh, new career, your new life, how did that look and how did that start? Well, I always knew that uh, real estate was, was of interest uh, to me. And so I had a buddy that had just landed a, a large client off of bigger pockets, shout out to bigger pockets here. Yeah. Um, and he had a boutique investment firm that was representing this $50 million fund that was doing the buy, renovate, refinance and repeat model at scale. Okay. So I knew he was starting that. Um, and so whenever I got fired, I called him up and it just so happened his head of acquisitions left. So I came on as the head of acquisitions for that fund, but I wasn't sold, right? So I also started a sales consulting company. I picked up the Inc's 5,000's fastest growing companies list. I called the first 
2000 and I landed three full-time sales consulting clients. And uh, when, I, when I landed them, they said, okay, where do we start? What do you do? We love you. We believe in you, but what do we, where do we go? And I was like, I don't know. So I picked up one of these <laughs> books behind me and yeah. I started reading out of Michael Zaberski's uh, consulting success book. And I started to put, you know, all these things together. I ended up just basically implementing new CRM systems, training salespeople on Franklin Covey concepts, you know, seek first to understand then to be understood that type of stuff. And then I was also flying around the country, going to their conferences, pitching their products. So I'd stand at the booth. You got this 6'3", 260 pound guy cornering people, you know, directing them over to the booth so we could have conversations. Uh, And six months into uh, that, uh, with the head of acquisitions, I was doing about 10 or 12 transactions a month uh, with the head of acquisitions position. So very busy on the real estate side. Yeah. Uh, and I also was full-time with this sales consulting. And uh, my wife looked at me, her top talent is strategic. Mine is bulldozer, if there is one. And so <laughs> she was like, man, I'm really proud of you. Like, great, you know, good job, but you need to focus. You're shotgunning right now. You need to rifle. And I was like, where did that come from? Like, where? And so I dissolved the sales consulting firm, finished up the work with the, the acquisition fund. And I sat down with those sponsors and I said, okay, guys, uh, we had really major success. You got 265 doors. We just did a big Corvest portfolio refinance. You returned 88% of the capital to your investors and you're still cash flowing. That's a good deal. Yeah. How'd you find the money? Was it yours? And that was the, the, the magic moment that they said, no, it was a syndication. I had never heard that word before. I was just, you know, out there hustling, finding deals, doing deals for them. And uh, I said, well, that's interesting. What is that? So started to educate myself, going to conferences and uh, said, this is what I'm going to do. So I went out, I'm a big believer. I can't sell anything after I got fired. I'm, I'm a big believer. I can't sell or be a part of something I don't believe in. And so I went out and bought a couple properties myself, got a few under my belt. And then I started to uh, syndicate properties and uh, we've done, oh man, Mike, I don't know how many projects now. Um, we've probably done 15 projects the last two, two and a half years okay. and up to 805 units. So, um, but that's, that's kind of how that whole progression started. Um, you know, I was a sales consultant slash quasi head of acquisitions for a fund here in Kansas city. Wow. That's a lot. And that's pretty impressive. And this, when did this, the, when you got the job as head of acquisitions for the fund, what year are we talking? Where are we at in time? This was, this upcoming uh, January will be my fourth full-time year in real estate. Wow. So three years ago. Okay. And with your syndications, just so in case people are, are curious, do two things, please. Explain at a very high level, what a syndication is. So they are, sure. so everyone's following us. And then once you do that, I have a, another question about how you've structured it a little bit, but go ahead Absolutely. if you don't mind. So I learned too that there's uh, certain types of investors and there's a big delineation that needs to be made between active and passive. There's this word 
this two, the phrase passive income that floats around real estate all of the time. There's nothing passive about actively owning real estate, no matter what it is, unless you are in a syndication. A syndication is just simply uh, the definition is a pooling of resources to then go achieve a goal together, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, these podcasts that we're doing, they are then syndicated to all of the other channels, right? So it's a pooling of resources. And so I learned that I ran out of money really quickly doing these these larger deals. So I had to find other people's money. OPM is another term that I hear a lot in the marketplace. And so I started to say, okay, well, how do you do that legally? That ran me down the the rabbit hole of understanding the regulations around the SEC. And so what we do now is we'll go buy a 150, 200 unit apartment complex. We will be the the sole managers of that. And then we will have uh, what's called accredited and non-accredited or sophisticated investors that just write a check to then get a dividend. If I can dumb it down to the very least, they get a dividend and we manage the toilets, the tenants and the trash. So that's kind of how I say it in a way that I think a lot of people understand. Okay, very good. Thank you for doing that. Okay, so your syndications or the way that you do it is, is the... I mean, is it a little bit of the burr? Is it, are you buying it? Are you getting in there, creating, creating the value, increasing the value of it, and then selling it off? Is that ultimately the plan to sell it? Or do you hold some of these? Yeah, I mean, we have a plan to actually sell the uh, assets back to ourselves in a different structure. Okay. Since I'm so involved with 1031 exchanges, I'm seeing a huge need for folks that are accidental investors. They inherited a property and or they had a rental property or a, a primary residence that turned into a rental property yeah. and they don't have time or the the uh, want or know how to be an investor. And so yeah. um, I'm seeing a lot of folks ask for tenancy in common structures. And uh, there's another structure, a DST or Delaware statuary trust structure, but typically those are very low in relation to the, the returns that you can get in a tick or in a syndication. And so my goal is to uh, implement the business plan. We have two. We also do self-storage here in Kansas City, but we'll just talk about multifamily. Okay. So one of the strategies is buying out in the sub-markets of Kansas City. Kansas City, Missouri, uh, urban core and proper school districts are some of the worst in the state. If you literally go 10 or 15 minutes around the city, there's all these pockets of 100, 150,000 people that live in these towns that are not in the same school districts. They built great school districts. So what happens is they move out to those sub-markets and they commute back in to go to work. And so uh, we, we target stabilized, more stabilized assets, what I'll call between core and value add right there in that middle ground in the okay. eastern sub- Jackson County submarkets to implement, you know, more or less cosmetic rehabs. And if there's an operating efficiency that we can implement, then we do that too. The second strategy is a heavier value add. So uh, this is heavy construction in an area of the urban core that uh, is, is, you know, traditionally lower income. One of the passions I have in Kansas City is doing my part to help end homelessness. So I, I focus on uh, affordable housing. And I say affordable, we, I deal with a lot of vouchers and I deal with a lot of, of uh, nonprofit organizations. I sit on the board of one of those nonprofit organizations that provides emergency shelter, 
uh, transitional and permanent housing. And I'm trying to play this conduit. Here's a real estate developer. Here's a nonprofit. Here's the housing authority in Kansas City. How do we all play on the same in the same field, right? How do we do better together? So uh, that's the other strategy. Those don't cash flow day one. But we're buying literally between twenty-five and $35,000 a unit in that area and sitting on them for five, 10 years, letting them appreciate, but also providing affordable housing. There's projects in certain areas of that urban core that we buy that are already trading at a 5% cap rate at $75,000 a door. So it will happen. It's just longer play. So really, I sit down with the investor and say, hey, are you more interested in stabilized cash flow day one? Or are you looking to multiply your money over a period of time? And that's a, a big question that folks have to answer. So we have those two strategies on the multifamily side here in Kansas City. Okay, so from a guy, uh, offensive lineman to corporate world to acquisitions guy, I know you did a ton of doors with the, yep. uh, with the, the fund. How did you learn rehab? <laughs> I learned rehab for my first and second projects here in Kansas City. But if I step back while I was in college, what I did was I worked at a, uh, at a construction company during the summers. Yeah. So I poured concrete, I built walls, I did drywall, I installed flooring, I painted, I did it all. So I, I had some sort of, uh, you know, kind of hands-on background there. Yeah. But then as a head of acquisitions of that fund, guess what I got to do? I got to estimate every single rehab. I looked at 450 properties in one year. Single family. And estimated single family homes. Yep. Okay. I, and I estimated 450 of them. And then I started to do smaller multifamily and realized there was a lot of, of carryover. You know, I can tell you what price per square foot flooring is, paint, you know, what the appliances are going to cost, yep. if a foundation is in good shape or not, sewers roofs, you name it. I mean, I tree trimming. Kansas City, you have to trim trees. And if you don't budget for that, you are going to break your budget. So I, it was more or less just, uh, I got put into the fire, but I had a little bit of a background to that. Thankfully, I have a, a construction manager now that that is much more well-versed in that. But I mean, that's how I got you know started was I had to just learn. And I, I missed some things and I got... Uh, I got reamed or I got coached, we'll say, by that fund to <laughs> yeah. not miss again. Yeah. So uh, those misses hurt, man. I mean, they they really did. So anyways, that's that's how I got kind of put into the fire on those. All right. Let me ask you another question because I, I always want people to hear different varied answers on this because I think people sometimes kind of look at it wrong. Once you, once you had estimated three or four dozen renovations, mm -hmm. right, you kind of get that under your belt. How long did it take you to estimate a single family home renovation budget? Frankly, I um, I started playing a game with myself. I would get on the MLS or the pictures that I had, and before I went, I would I would guesstimate, so to speak. I would see what the square footage was. Did it have a basement? Does it have a garage? You know, what's the what what's the lay of the land look like? All of those things, and I would say, okay, I think that this house is going to be between twelve and thirteen thousand dollars. Then when I would go and view the property, I'd have my pad and I'd be writing things down. I'd get back to the computer screen, put it into my pro forma budget that I had created, and I'd see where my delta was. So when I first started, it took me an hour mm -hmm. for one house, an hour. Uh, by you know probably 25 or 50, I was down to about 45 minutes. Uh, but when I was done, uh, after I had done 250 of these things, it took me about 17 minutes to walk a whole property. Yeah. That's where it gets to. I think sometimes, and, and I guess it, it took you 17 minutes. Well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I'll tell you my philosophy, and I, I'm assuming you're going to be in the same vein. 
people sometimes when they're running, when they're doing this renovation budget, they want to like get down super granular, like how many outlet covers do I need to mm-hmm. buy at, you know, 15 cents each or yep. whatever. And, and I always tell people you, you really should, it, that's kind of a waste of time. Like there's the big items, there's a the floor, there's the, the paint, there's, you know, repairs, yep. there's the mechanicals, the roof, the windows, plumbing, that kind of stuff. Right. But I don't like count how many tubes of caulk I'm going to like, I just yep. don't. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm with you. I've done hundreds of houses and, and I can walk through a house and I can almost estimate it with incredible accuracy without even writing anything down. I'm sure you can too. And sure. that's where you want to get to. I think people overcomplicate sometimes the renovation part of it and just know things will go wrong too. Like you're yeah. not going to, you're not going to guess everything. Um, okay. So I have some stuff I wrote down. How did you, how did you, you said you, you, you manage those syndications, like you're, you're running that show. How did yeah. you learn that? Right. Cause that's a whole different thing. You mentioned storage, right? It's a different ball game. How did you learn how to run operations for a syndication like that? Partnered. Okay. Partnered, partnered, partnered. The first three deals I did myself, I almost quit. And when I say almost quit, I probably wasn't even close to quitting, but it felt like I almost quit to myself. <laughs> Something tells but, me you're not a quitter, man. I don't think yeah, you quit, but I hear you. I, it's what it felt like. Yeah, I was like, yeah. man, I cannot do this again. I was the acquisitions guy. I placed the debt. I raised the equity. I managed the construction. I did it all, leasing, everything. And I property management. Okay. What did I, and so I debriefed, right? So I said, okay, where can I find my sweet spot? I'm really big on Japanese uh, philosophies in relation to business. Kaizen and Ikigai are two of my favorite things. Constant and never-ending improvement and then finding your sweet spot. What you can get paid for, what the world needs, what's your greatest strength, what's your greatest passion. In that Venn diagram, there's an overlap mm-hmm. and you can find where that sweet spot is. So I really was self-aware, sat down, broke every transaction down, what I was good at, what I was not good at, what could other people do better than me, what can I outsource and all of that. And I found that uh, what I'm really good at is finding a property, building relationships with folks, finding people and creating a message to get people excited about it. But once that's done, I'm a hunter. And so I need to, I need to then go find a details-oriented project manager, somebody that has real estate experience and construction. So what I did was I partnered. I started taking smaller portions of bigger deals bringing folks into a fully baked deal basically Uh and said, Hey, you've been doing this for 17 years. You have a thousand units under your belt. Let me bring you some projects. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I need. I want to learn from you. When I started to learn from those people, I learned that it was not my strong suit. And I just decided to build a company around those people as well. (laughs) Yeah. That's smart, man. That's smart. I like that. Um, So how, Okay, a couple of questions. You you asked the I think it was the fund that you were working for. Where did you find the money for this? And they said we mm-hmm. raised it basically syndications. That okay. So knowing that that's what has to be done and actually creating the pitch deck, the, however you did it, the webinar. How, how did you? Boy, I've got a lot of questions. How did sure. you learn to pitch the deal to investors? Yeah. If you look behind, you guys probably don't, aren't watching this, but if you do have a chance to look behind me, I put my favorite books right behind my head. And a few of those favorite books you'll see in there is Joe Fairless's apartment book. I don't remember the name of it anymore, but it, it's really, really, you know, in depth. Uh, Stephen or something flesh, Sam, Sam Freshman's book, Real Estate Syndication, okay. which is like the textbook for syndication. I mean, he's like, 85 years old. And he wrote that book a long time ago. Yeah. Um, 
you've got Orin Kloff's pitch anything, you've got flip the script, and then you've got never split the difference. Yeah. So basically, I said, okay, what are the components of a real estate project? What do investors need to know? And one thing that changed the the corner for me or helped me turn the corner was the Joe Fearless FAQ question of his book. He lays out about 100 questions that passive investors will ask you. I started to build my pitch decks around answering those questions because in flip the script, in pitch anything, your goal is to not even get to objections. And the way that you do that is you talk them through beforehand. Yeah. You're always going to get questions and that's that's going to be a part of it. But you can get ahead of the game and you cannot get stuck being the analyst in the analyst frame. He's always talking about frames. And so when you get stuck in an analyst frame and you're not an analyst and you don't know how internal rate of return is, I, you know, is calculated and you can't say it off the top of your head, there goes your credibility. Yeah. But if you bring your analysts with you and they can speak to that, all of those different things. So I started to think about the questions that they would ask me before they would even ask me. And I started to bake that into my, my pitch decks. They used to be really long. And then I started to say, okay, I need to shorten this because I'm losing people's attention. And so now it's between 15 and 20 you know, slides. And most of the things that they would ask me are already just coming up naturally because I've done it so much, but yeah. also I know the questions they're going to ask. So they're just talking points. So yeah. um, it was a learning process, but I'm, a, I'm an avid studier of all those folks. Hunter Thompson's raising capital for real estate. Matt Faircloth is my buddy raising capital for or raising private capital over at Bigger Pockets. All of those guys, I owe a lot of my uh, capital raising and kind of pitch creation uh, success too. Yeah, I love it. How did you find investors? I know not accredited or people you, you kind of know personally. I get that. Yep. But the accredited, how, how are you, how did you, maybe in the beginning, that's maybe that's even more important right now. How In the beginning, how did you find investors or did you just have a Rolodex of folks that you knew had tons of money that would love to talk to you? <laughs> I wish I had that. Uh, I'm 30 years old. My hair is not uh, white yet and I'm not a part of any country clubs in Kansas City. That's how a lot of it is done. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want, I'm, people probably don't want to hear that, but your power base, Grant Cardone talks about your power base is so important. So, you know, I never raised a dollar for my friends or my family. My wife wouldn't allow me to do it. She said, until you have this amount of, of assets under management, we won't even have the conversation. And now that I'm there, I still haven't even broached the conversation. So what did I do? Okay. Well, I kind of created what I call a capital raising machine and it all starts with reputation leadership and visibility. And there's a lot of social medias to do that in, in, you know, obviously on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, um, all of those different uh, places that you can do that. But I really started on bigger pockets. I started building relationships with people that were interested in Kansas City, exposing them to a new idea. So taking them from, hey, I'm going to buy a single family residence to, oh man, maybe I can get the same type of returns and not be as active through a syndication. They just weren't educated about that. So it really yeah. started off bigger pockets. I funded my first two or three projects uh, from being a bigger pockets pro member and um, engaging with people about Kansas City. Uh, and then it just started to kind of happen organically, uh, word of mouth. I started to get on the podcast, started my own podcast. Um, but it's all about that reputation, leadership, and visibility. So analyzing my competition, myself, and my investors, and then positioning myself in that, what I call, or what Richard C. Wilson calls, 
the sandbox, right? What sandbox do you want to play in, right? And that's my sandbox is Kansas City, Missouri. I don't do deals typically outside of Kansas City. That's my competitive edge. So uh, it's an ongoing process every single day. I've posted three or four times on LinkedIn uh, organically myself, probably for 12 months straight now because of my good buddy, Yona Weiss. Uh, And Yona has taught me how to use LinkedIn. And I've created a massive following over 10,500 people on LinkedIn that engage with me on a regular basis. So, um, and, and here's how I first started too, right? So like, you guys remember the the conversation I said, how did I get those first three clients? I picked up that list of Inc.'s 5,000's fastest growing companies. Yep. I'm not afraid to pick up the phone, right? So just to build a relationship with somebody, even if they were inbound with you, takes eight to 12 touches. And so I just stay in front of people. Yeah. I stay persistent and I stay focused on that. So uh, it's exhausting. I'm, I'm on calls 55 to 65 times a week. I'll repeat that, 55 to 65 calls a week. Uh, in 15 minute increments. And then I have follow up on top of that. Then I have content production and then I have actually doing real estate too. Uh, So it's not for the faint of heart. Don't think you're going to get into this game, create a LinkedIn profile and start having money just flow to you. That is not how this works. And that is one thing too, Mike, that uh, I don't want to get too polarizing. I'm a very polarizing guy because I'm just very open with what I have done and how I have done it. That, uh, you know, I think there's a mantra out there that if you build it, they will come. If you build this platform, they will come. Yeah, It takes years to build a platform. <laughs> exactly. Years. You have an incredible yeah. podcast, but you, you've been at this, right? Yeah. You've yeah. been doing this, man. So uh, it takes a lot of time. So people just stay yeah. you know, confident and stay patient throughout the process. We're in the microwave society, right? If we can't just hit right. a button a few seconds later, it's cooked, we're, we get impatient. I love it. Ooh. First of all, I want to say this before I forget, because I've thought it a few times when you're talking. I think I need to get your wife on this podcast at some point, because she sounds like a smart lady. She she's sounds like incredible. she's given you some solid advice over the years that has mm-hmm. absolutely made a huge difference. So uh, kudos to you for finding someone so incredible. That's awesome, man. Yes. Thank you. So, yeah, no problem. So Let's talk a little bit about bigger pockets. Um, okay. I'm a fan of theirs. I, I like those guys over there. I've, I've been on their show a few times yeah. um, and know them a little bit. I know that they're not huge proponents and, and they don't really support people just blatantly advertising on their platform, that's right. right? And that's they'll what keeps you it kind of, yeah, they'll kick you off. And you went on there and started, you said engaging. And I'm, I'm talking about this because I think sometimes people get the wrong idea of how folks like you create relationships and bring awareness to yourself. My guess is you didn't go on there and start spamming other people's comments and like, hey, check this out. If you want to invest your money, here's a great way, yeah. right? You started conversations, you you provided value to people, yep. and you created organic relationships that turned into something else. And I think, again, going back to the impatience part of it, and, and I, I know I hear this all the time, right? Like somebody wants to go in bigger pockets. Like that's a big platform. There's tons of people on there, probably lots of opportunities. I'm going to go in there and just start every, I'm going to go into every conversation thread and I'm just going to like cram in my thing that I want them yep. to buy or whatever. And and that's the wrong way to go in on any platform, right? Any social media platform, but bigger pockets can be powerful guys, but go in there and do it right. Create value, be a good person, try to give back, like give actual value and actually care about what yep. you're trying to help people with. And then people will naturally gravitate toward you and they'll want to know more about you if you're providing value. So I just want to make that point. I like the way you did it. And I, and I think that that's super smart and people, you know, it's yeah. like, you know, relationships take time. They're not light switches. So you have to put mm-hmm. in that time. You you mentioned a little bit, or maybe you didn't, and I just wrote it down because you made me think of it. 
I, I, I don't want to put, again, not put words in your mouth, but I personally think that the market is going to be, is going to be changing soon. Yeah. Um, it's probably debatable as to how much it will change and why it's changing and the factors and all that. But if, if you agree that the, uh, with my premise that there will be a market shift that's coming, how do you think that will affect your business? Do are sure. you, I no one's excited people lose their jobs or lose their houses. I get that. But from a just purely real estate opportunity standpoint, are you excited about the opportunities that will present themselves over the next 12 to 18 months? Are you concerned that you have to change your model? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And one that I spend a lot of time thinking through and talking people through, right? So, well, we first have to understand where, what is that change, right? And there's a lot of different things that we could talk about. Maybe some of the changes you're alluding to is the eviction moratorium, or, you know, maybe people don't have as much money in their pockets, or, uh, you know, there's a lot of different things. What I would say is when I called my financial advisor and said, hey, I have X amount of money uh, to invest with you right now, uh, what did he tell me? dollar cost of average uh, average of investing, right? Logan, you can't time the markets. You're not going to be able to do that. So you probably should just continue to invest because a dollar invested today is worth more than a dollar invested yesterday or tomorrow, right? right? So like, I take that same approach into real estate investing. Now, with that being said, everybody was talking about COVID pricing in March, okay? Yep. And yep. if we think about this, Mike, we might be, it's debatable, I guess, but we might be in a worse scenario economically, politically, and health-wise than we were in March. But why is everybody buying real estate now? Because there's a perception certainty that has been created over the last seven or eight months. Now, if that shift has not come yet, then that perception doesn't matter. But that perception is reality. And people do believe that, hey, it's held up this far. It's going to continue to hold up. So then you have to take the notion of, okay, well, what strategy works in a recession, right? You have self-storage and you have affordable housing, right? Mm -hmm. So affordable housing being paid by the government, I don't think that's going to stop. If anything, uh, the government's not going to stop paying people's rents. I guarantee you that. But yeah. with, with that being said, there's also workforce housing, which is what we focus on. So no amenities really at the property, safe clean. You know, you're not going to have stainless steel appliances or granite countertops in these places, but they're one and two bedroom places that families feel good about living in. Yeah. And here's the other port, point, part, important part is medium rent to income ratio. This is so crucial. On the deal that we're doing right now, I have a webinar tonight that we're doing on 171 units. And on that prop project, everybody talks about the 30% rule on the price to, to income rate or the medium average income to, to rent ratio, right? It's 11%. So the average income, household income, $65,000, a two bedroom apartment over there, 650. Wow. 655, right? So like wow. at that, at that, at that level, it's really easy to find a way to get $655 a month to keep your family from being on the street. So yeah. I think it's a positioning of the assets. Um, and I think also it's being fundamentally understanding of where your market is. I'm a real estate broker. I transact deals at crazy levels uh, all of the time. I don't buy that stuff. And I don't do that type of deal on the acquisition side. Yeah. But I know that, you know, hey, on this acquisition we're doing, the average, you know, rent, or sorry, the average price per door in that market over the last 12 months has been $53,000. I'm under contract at 42.5. 
I got an $11,000 margin of safety on that deal. So I think that we're trying to understand, you know, your market that you're in, your asset class that you're in. The real estate guys, Russ Gray, one of my good mentors is always saying, you know, real estate is hyper local. And even inside of a market, it's local inside of, of that own market. So uh, that's how I'm approaching this scenario. Uh, very specific on the location, the asset types, and uh, watching that if we don't have to raise the rents or if we even have to lower the rents to keep people, do we cover our debt service? Yeah. And, and that's a, that's those are just all important things you have to stress test your deals on. I love it, man. How are you finding deals nowadays? Where you're getting these these syndicated these syndication deals, the commercial multifamily. How are you finding them? Okay, so it's my job as a real estate broker to build relationships with sellers. So uh, obviously that is a core component of my business anyways. So I do that as a profit producing activity on a regular basis. But what I have done is I have created an ecosystem of other brokers that represent me, even though I am a broker. I'm going to say it again. I have other brokers represent me in transactions all of the time. Here's why. They know if they bring a certain type of asset to us, that one, they're going to get an offer in about three to five days after I underwrite the deal. That gr- that brings them a lot of clout with that seller. That creates relationship capital with that seller so they can say, oh, this person's real. They're bringing me an offer. The second is performance. We have performed on, I was doing the numbers right before we got on the call, 671 units this year. So we have performed on those. So in, we've been in the journal, the business journal, all of that stuff. So our name is out there. So those two things give brokers really a lot of confidence. Uh, And so I've transacted so much with other selling brokers. I've built relationships with them. I have two or three agents that work on acquisitions for us uh, specifically and always have us in mind. And then just really building those, you know, similar relationships with sellers and and, uh, larger groups like myself. You think about people who are doing what I was doing 20 years ago. Their business plans are probably implemented. They've made their IRRs. Their investors are ready to get some capital back. They're 60, 65 years old, uh, maybe 55 years old. And uh, it's time for them to move on to the next asset, maybe a stabilized industrial deal. Well, let me see your whole portfolio and let me see if I can get you an offer. So those are some ways that I'm approaching this and it's created uh, a great deal of uh, deal flow for us this year. I love it. I love it, man. Obviously, you know your stuff. You talked about you that you have a podcast. Let's talk about it for a second. I've had a podcast now for seven years. Uh, yeah. You mentioned John Lee Dumas in the, at some point. He was the guy that actually mentored me to, to start my podcast and kind of talked me through it in the beginning stages a long time ago. Podcasts, although they might seem fun, they are fun. Uh, there's there's work involved. It takes you're a guy who sounds like you've scheduled yourself pretty tight. Yeah. You have a a beautiful daughter. I can see behind you there over your shoulder. Got a little son too now too. Okay. All right. Beautiful kids. Uh, you have a, a crazy smart wife uh, who probably wants to see you too. Why a podcast? Why'd you do it? Because it takes time, pulls time away. What what, what yep. do you get out of that? What do you do, and what is it about? Also, sure. Well, so the first podcast that I that I started was. Uh, simply for content creation and relationship building. And so I was using my Live Free Investors podcast, which is still, you know, putting episodes out on a regular basis to learn from service providers like qualified intermediaries, lenders, other owners of properties, real estate uh, agents and investors that were out of state to get in their heads, understand what they're thinking about. 
And uh, if I was already going to do those calls, I figured this was back in March. Mm-hmm. I figured, uh, why not just record it and create a podcast, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I had a full-time, I still do have a full-time social media manager. I said, hey, how hard would it be for us to create some graphics and put these up on YouTube? He said, I don't know. I'd probably be another hour a week for me. I said, done. You yeah. know, And so I started to do that. And I've created this, you know, I've got 55 episodes now and, and it's created a nice little following for me. Uh, I've I've kind of paired those back because again, my wife looked at me and she goes, why on Mondays are you doing four podcast interviews from 12 to 4.30? Why are you doing that on Mondays? She said, first off, why are you doing four? That's a lot. You're exhausted afterwards. And two, why are you doing on your biggest planning day whenever everybody from the commercial real estate industry takes off Saturday and Sunday is flooding your inbox and your calls and you're, yeah. you're feeling overwhelmed? Move them and do less. I canceled 47 podcast interviews. Okay. That's, that's, so that's one point is, is I did it for content creation and relationship building. Okay. Um, I also did to find deals. Believe it or not, I found deals through my podcast, which was yeah. a whole nother. I know we're coming up on time here. So fine. Um, the, the, biggest, the biggest reason or the biggest thing that I'm doing now is thinking about, okay, the last three years, I have completed $100 million in real estate transactions, principal and brokerage. If I want to level up, right? If I want to be the next level, how do I take those three years of production and compress them into one year? And here's my idea. This is, the, this is what I'm working on now because two or three Mondays ago, I'm a big journaler. So I, I've used Darren Hardy's Living Your Best Year Ever journal for seven years. Two years ago, I, I switched over to Brendan Burchard's High Performance Planner. Okay. Two or three Mondays ago, I posted six or a picture of six of the journals because they're, you know, every journal is two months. And I, I posted a picture of this on LinkedIn. And for me, this went viral. It has over 19,000 views and like, you know, 100 comments or something like that. Because I quantified the time that I had spent before the sun, this, my windows right here, before the sun got up. I get up between 3 and 3.30 a.m. every single day. I've created 522 hours of planning my days out, working on Logan before my crazy day gets started. I average 8 to 12 meetings a day. And so... Um, that is 22 days, 522 hours is 22 days full before my competition has gotten up. Here's why I'm starting a new podcast about how to achieve a big, big, hairy, audacious goal. I had nine new accredited investors reach out to me and are going to be on our webinar tonight because of a, of a journal post off of LinkedIn. I post real estate stuff all week, every week. Nothing. I mean, you know, I get regular engagement, but not like that. And so I said, people want to understand who you are. People invest in a person, not necessarily a brand, unless you're, unless you're Apple or something. Right. But they also want to see your dedication and what you're doing to differentiate yourself. And so uh, I've got this new idea called the podcast is going to be called compression. And it is how to compress, you know, three, five years worth of results into one and not by working harder. I cannot work harder. It's about working smarter. It's about efficiency, effectiveness, and planning. And so anyways, that's got me really pumped up, if you can't tell. And uh, I'm really excited about that new podcast. And it's not going to be necessarily real estate focused, but people are going to get a weekly di- you know, digest into what the heck is this guy doing on a regular basis? How is he achieving those goals and what is he doing? And I think it's going to be very resonating for people. I love it, man. I love that. I love that the people invest in people, not companies or not brands. Like you said, I've been saying that for years. I totally agree. All, all the money I've ever had lent to me ever 
had nothing to do with my track record, really. Yep. It had more to do with me and the way they related to me. Um, exactly. I love the idea for the podcast. I wrote a whole book that essentially is is that 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 vein, right? It's called Level Jumping. Yep. It's about compression. It's about taking, for me in my world, it was taking the lessons of other people mm-hmm. and using their hindsight as my foresight so that I could take someone who had like a six-year success story and compress that down into a year. Right. Right? We were talking before the podcast and you said, hey, I'd like to talk about how you get over a million dollars in profits in a year. That's how I did it. Yeah. I took I took lessons learned over the course of several years and I said, if I, if I see all this, if I understand what they did right, wrong, and otherwise... Why can't I just shortcut everything and do it sooner? So I love the concept. I love the I love the podcast concept. It's going to be awesome. There's no doubt about it, man. Well, listen, you, I, I don't want to take up your whole day. I, I know we have bit we're within the hour here, and I want to respect your time. Uh, I do want to thank you for this, guys. Go go check out his his uh, his podcast, the the Live Free Investors podcast. He's yep. still producing that. You're going to have the Compression podcast coming out. I don't know if it'll be out when this goes live, but look for that. Check it out, um, man. I just appreciate your time. You're an impressive yeah. guy. I love talking to people who work their butts off like you do. Uh, you clearly are not afraid to do the hard work. You're not afraid to pick up a phone and make a call. Uh, right. And you're certainly not afraid to dig in and learn. I can see by the library behind you, like you you mm-hmm. are all about learning and getting better. And uh, you have literally every component necessary to be wildly successful. And you are, and you'll continue to be. So uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for spending time. And thanks for your complete honesty, because I've done enough of these to know when people are holding back what they really know. And you're not. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you would have answered anything I asked you. So I, and I did ask you everything I could think of. So thank you again, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Mike, thank you for the work that you do. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Until next time. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Hope you got a lot out of it. I really enjoyed talking to Logan. Very, very good guy. Uh, lots of just his heart's in the right place. I can tell he's a hard worker and he's super forthcoming. I mean, the guy would have asked, answered anything, like I said on the show. He just... Uh, very, very honest and transparent guy and uh, very successful in actually a very short amount of time. Guys, he's only been doing this for four years and he's already like got these huge syndications and, you know, he's done an awful lot because you know why he executes. Like he just is about execution and getting things done and learning and applying what he learns, right? That's the key to it. That's everything. I know people who've had so much more opportunity or maybe just help even than he's had and and have done a lot less with it because they're not executing at a high level. You have to execute at a high level. You have to get started. Guys, go out there and get started. Take what he taught you today. Take some of the lessons, if not exactly what he did. Just take the lessons. Take the, the fact that he wants to know how to do something. You know what he told me time and time again, both on and off mic? Like, I got a book on someone who knows that area or knows knows that thing. And I I read the book and I just did what they said in the book. Like that's how he learned to put together these syndications. That's how we learned how how to pitch the syndication to investors. Like that's it, it's out there, the information. It's not a lack of information, guys. It's a lack of execution. And that's tough love for today. So go out there and execute, go out there and get started. Go out and today, make make today the day that everything changes for you and things turn around and you get yourself on track to go where you want to go so that you end up where you want to ultimately be. All right, go make it happen, guys. We'll talk to you next time. Okay, you're still there. You're still listening. That's awesome, and I really appreciate that. Now, hopefully it wasn't an accident. Hopefully you didn't leave the room and I'm just talking to an empty room right now, but assuming you're still there, I wanna do something really, really cool for you. For a limited time, I wanna give you a free digital download of my book, the entire book, 
level jumping. If you're a listener to the show, you know it just came out and it really details how I took my business from being like one where I was just doing a few deals a month, maybe one or two deals a month to doing over 10 and sometimes 15 deals a month and over a hundred a year. And I went from doing very little profit to over a million dollars in profit. And I made that transformation in a 12 month period. And this book talks about what I did, the steps I took to transform my business and how you can too. So grab a free digital download and you can get that by texting the words just start as two words now just start to the number 55444 so text just start to 55444 I will send you a free digital download of my book it's the complete book there's nothing held back and that'll be completely yours just for making it to the end of the show and listening to me and I really really appreciate it guys so I want to do something nice for you I do this every once in a while at the end of shows and if you listen to the very end every once in a while I do a giveaway like this so hopefully you enjoy that go grab a free copy I hope you read it I hope you love it reach out let me know what you think all right guys talk to you next time